The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Our passage this morning is in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness, show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Emiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Emiel, at Lodabar. And Meshibosheth said that the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Meshibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Meshibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Meshibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Meshibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Meshibosheth's servants. So the house became Meshibosheth's so Meshibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. I want you to think about a time when someone did something for you that was just extraordinarily kind, just like mind-blowingly kind. And as you think about that, I want you to, to try to remember how did you respond to that act of kindness. And there's any number of things that that could possibly do to someone. You know, maybe you had thought about that person who did that thing for you, or maybe treated you that way. Maybe you had one kind of idea of them, you had thought about them a certain kind of way, but they, they showed you this act of kindness that was so extravagant that it completely changed your perception about who they were, what they're about, it just completely changed your relationship with that person. 
Maybe it produced in you like gratitude and thanksgiving to God that someone had done that to you, that that was his act of loving kindness to you from them. And so it made you give thanks to God, but then also caused you to want to turn around and do something kind for someone else. You know, whatever the result may have been, we recognize that extraordinary acts of kindness, they, they just don't lead to nothing. At least not in people who recognize just how great the kindness is that they have been shown, that they have received. You know, recognition that I have been shown great kindness is going to produce in me a joyful awe, a wondering at, wow, that was just really kind. And it's also going to produce a response that is consistent with the joy that it has given me. Well, in our text this morning, which Bob read for us, David shows extraordinary kindness to Mephibosheth. And so the point in this text is that God's king shows God's kindness through covenant loyalty, which is a shadow of the kindness of God to us in Christ. And so what I want us to see, what I want you to see, is that this produces something. This kindness that God has shown to us, it produces something in God's people. So, there are two parts, as I see it, to the text. The first is David's desire to show kindness. So you open in 2 Samuel 9... And I don't know if this is David, he's just kind of talking out loud to the people that are around him. You know, maybe that's the case because of what happens there in verse 2 where the servants, uh, they go out and they find Ziba and they bring him back to David. So maybe that's what's happening. You know, maybe, you have, or maybe we've got shower thoughts with David. You know, he's just thinking, who is still left from Saul's house? But specifically, he's thinking... And he's wondering, is there anyone left that I may show them kindness for Jonathan's sake? And so that, that maybe raises a question for us. Okay, what, what's going on with David here? Is David just being sentimental? Is he remembering his friend and the kindness that his friend showed to him? And so now that his kingdom is fairly well established, it's in good order, things seem to have kind of settled down for David. Now he's reflecting back on Jonathan and going, you know, it's time to pay it forward. Well, no, there are actually several layers here to David's kindness, and these are very important for us to understand because they're going to establish a baseline for us so that we can understand the text. Now, the first thing that we have to wrap our minds around is that David's desire to do this is completely outside of the cultural norm. And you probably kind of recognize that reading that. If you stop and think about what has been true when one regime replaces another regime over the course of human history, past and present, what happens? 
Well, the new regime usually doesn't take too kindly to there still being people left over from the old regime, so they go and they wipe them out. They go and they kill anyone and everyone that they can find because they are looking at them and going, well, if these people are still around, then they might cause a problem. They pose a threat. They might start an uprising because they might start looking at my throne and going, well, that was my daddy's throne. That should have been my throne. And so they want to come and take it back. You can even look at this text and see in the text that this expectation just permeated people's minds. Look again at verse 3. So you have Ziba that gets brought before David. Now David is bringing him forward because he wants help locating a member of Saul's house. And so Ziba, when he hears this request from David, he says to him, yeah, there is still a son of Jonathan. Look what he says next. He is crippled in his feet. Why would he say that? Has David asked that? No, he hasn't. So why is Ziba bringing this up right now? Well, read between the lines. What is he telling David? This guy is not a threat to you. He can't even walk. So David, just leave him alone. Let him be. He's suffered enough. You don't have to worry about him. David, of course, finding out where he is, goes and fetches him and has him brought forward. And so how does Mephibosheth respond to being brought before David? You see that in verses 6 and 7. He falls before David prostrates himself before him and pays homage to him. Well, David, looking at him, it says to him, and his response, I think, is really telling because it tells us what is oozing off of Mephibosheth, what David is, is picking up, looking at this guy who's laid out before him. He says to Mephibosheth, Do not fear, for I will show you Kindness. See, Mephibosheth, he knew what new kings did to the family of the old kings. And so he's coming in there, shaking in his boots, because he knows, he's expecting, this does not end with me walking back out those doors. Now, and so David had to reassure him that that wouldn't happen. But now the skeptic, may come to this text, and, and, and even the skeptic in us may want to look at this and go, okay, yeah, it's, but it's no big deal that David doesn't want to kill him because the guy is crippled. And so he doesn't actually pose a threat to David, so this is really a low-risk move for David. It's really, it's probably just a shrewd political move. This is a stunt that David is doing to make sure that he keeps the favor of the people. But the text, see, the text doesn't allow us to say that. Because look back at verse 1. When did David decide that he would show kindness to Mephibosheth? Before he even knew that Mephibosheth was alive. Much less before he knew that he was crippled. Remember, he had to ask the question, is there anyone left from Saul's house that I can show kindness to? 
before he could act on that desire. But in light of just the cultural context, in light of what we even see from Ziba and Mephibosheth, we have to recognize that in all likelihood, had David wanted to act like any other king, and he wanted to put Mephibosheth to death, and as we saw later on the text, Mephibosheth has a son, if he had wanted to put him to death too, then David probably would have had ample support from within his administration. I know it's been a minute since we've been in First uh, and Second Samuel, but you probably remember the sons of Zeruiah, especially Joab. You remember that guy? He's a bad dude. If you got on his wrong side, you ended up with a knife in your gut. So especially in light of the civil war that had taken place within Israel after Abner, who was Saul's uncle, if you recall, took Ishbosheth, who was one of Saul's other sons, and had put him on the throne to rule over the other 11 tribes while David was ruling over Judah at Hebron. In light of that, you have to recognize that had David stepped in and said, you know what, there was this insurrection before, there will be an insurrection again, got to take him out. That even within his own administration, there probably was going to be acceptance. But here's the thing. That's what pagan kings did, and that's what pagan kings do. David is God's king. That is not how God's king acts. And so we have to understand, to rightly appreciate what's going on here first, just how countercultural David's desire itself, much less his actions, simply the desire was. And so that should raise more questions for us, all right? So why is David doing this? Well, first we see that David is doing this so that he may be faithful to his covenant with Jonathan. He says, I will show you kindness for Jonathan's sake. So this goes back to the period just before David uh, was about to go on the run from Saul. You might remember that David was anointed king in 1 Samuel 16, but the incumbent king, Saul, had sought to kill him tries to kill him by pinning him to a wall with a spear, and so multiple times, and so David has to flee. But before he does that, one of Saul's sons, Jonathan, comes to him. And now what you have to remember about Jonathan, and Saul even told us this in the text, is that if this was a hereditary monarchy, where we're just passing the kingship down to the next son, Jonathan was the one who was next in line to receive the throne. He was the king in waiting. But see, Jonathan was very different from his dad. Saul had been rejected as king because he refused to trust and obey the Lord. Jonathan, however, knew that the Lord had promised the throne to David. And Jonathan was fine with that because he trusted the Lord. And so rather than Jonathan looking at David as an enemy, looking at him as someone who has to be gotten out of the way, Jonathan attached himself to the Lord's king. And he did this through covenant. 
Look with me at 1 Samuel 20, starting in verse 14. This is what Jonathan says to David. He says, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. But of course, Jonathan is dead. And he has been dead for some time now. And so if David were to say, Well, that covenant, it's as dead as Jonathan is. Again, who's going to question him? But that's not what David does. Think about it. He seeks out someone from Saul's line, not to kill them, but to bless them. Because of his covenant with Jonathan, he will bless them as an act of covenant loyalty. So his intention is to display kindness, not just kind of generally, but within a very specific context, within the context of covenant loyalty. And so in this way, he rightly represents God, which is what God's king does. God's king reflects the character of God to God's people. And so here, that comes through his commitment to covenant fidelity. See, covenant faithfulness is the backbone of God's relationship to his people. The scriptures testify to this over and over again. God takes people and he brings them into covenant with himself. People who are, don't deserve it. But he takes them and he brings them into covenant with himself. He makes them his own. He becomes their God. He makes to them very great promises. And what do his people do? They fall flat on their face. Time and time again, what we see is that God's people are unable to keep the covenant, to remain faithful to it. But despite his people's inability, what does God do? He remains steadfast. God keeps his promises. So then, why does David want to show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Because he trusts God. David trusts that God will honor his covenant to him, and this produces in David a desire to honor his own. See, David, quite obviously, is not concerned with what showing kindness to Mephibosheth may do to his kingdom. He believes that God will do what God has said that he will do. And why wouldn't he? God delivered him in battle against Goliath. God preserved him alive all those many years that he was on the run from Saul. 
including when he had to flee to the Philistines to get away from Saul. God was with him. He kept David from taking revenge for himself. He established him as king over first Judah and then ultimately all of Israel. He has taken vengeance on David's enemies. The Lord has been with David every step of the way. And now what is it that the Lord has promised to do for him? Perhaps you remember 2 Samuel 7 and the covenant that the Lord makes with David. Hear this. This is from 2 Samuel 7. This is just verses 12 through 16. I'd encourage you, go back, read all of 2 Samuel 7, as it's so very good and so very important. But here, just for our purposes this morning, verses 12 through 16, the Lord says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God would establish his kingdom forever. It wasn't up to David. So rather than worry about Mephibosheth and whatever kind of mischief Mephibosheth might do, David is free. David is free to pour out kindness on Mephibosheth. There's one more thing. One more thing to see before we look at all the things that David actually does. Look one more time at verse 3. See, David says there, in talking to Ziba, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him. The kindness that David is determined to show is an outflow of all of the kindness of God to him. See, God has poured out blessing on David. Think of it like a cup. And I will give Tom credit, because as we were talking about it in the office this week, He said this, so give credit where it's due. Think of it like a cup. David's the cup. And the Lord has just been pouring kindness out on David. And it's filling up the cup, filling up the cup. Well, now, what's happening? It's overflowing the edges. And it is pouring out on all of those who are under David. He's the king over the people of God. And so God's kindness to the king is now pouring out onto Mephibosheth. So God has poured out blessing on David, and now that blessing spilling out on others. And so what we're seeing is that God's king is the one through whom God's covenant faithfulness is experienced. 
God's king shows God's people what God's kindness is like. And what we see in the text is that this kindness, as we see it, as we experience, as we come to know it, one, we recognize that it is very great. And the right response to it is awe and wonder. So that brings us to the second part of the text. David's display of God's kindness. So look again at verse 7. Tells Mephibosheth, do not fear, for I will show you kindness. And take note of this. We didn't talk about this yet. For the sake of your father, Jonathan. So not only is the text emphasizing for us that God's king shows God's kindness through covenant loyalty, but it's also emphasizing that Mephibosheth did not actually merit this kindness on his own. There was nothing about Mephibosheth that said to David, hey, that one, you should show kindness to that one. No, the only reason that David is choosing to show kindness to him is because of his association with Jonathan. Mephibosheth didn't earn it. How could he have? He belongs to this house of this failed king who tried to kill him, whose family started an insurrection and tried to keep him from having the throne. Mephibosheth deserves nothing from David. And yet David, simply because he's faithful and because he wants to, is pouring out blessing on Mephibosheth. And then he says to him, And I will restore to you all the land of, your, of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. You might call that a dramatic turn of events for old Mephibosheth. And we learn in verse 4 that he'd been living with a guy named Makir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. We might look at it. Okay, cool. What does that mean? Well, remember, Ziba had just made it known at that point that he's crippled. So what that means is Mephibosheth, who had come from a royal house, was now living under the roof of someone else because he needed someone to care for him. He needed his needs met because he was physically unable to do that for himself. And the place where he was living was not inside the land proper, but actually on the other side of the Jordan River. And so, now, his fortunes have been reversed. The tables have been turned, if you will. Now, he's going to receive everything that is Jonathan's son he would have enjoyed as the king's grandson, and presumably had Jonathan remained alive and things remained the same, eventually the king's son, where would he have eaten? The king's table. Whose land would he have stood to inherit? The king's land. But when Saul and Jonathan died, and his nurse had to take him up and flee with him, what was he losing? 
all of that. But now, as David pours out God's kindness upon him, he receives it all back. But there's more. While Mephibosheth is probably standing off to the side with his jaw still on the ground, David brings Ziba back in. And so look at what he says to him in verses 9 and 10, and see what else David does for Mephibosheth. So after he explains the situation to Ziba, hey, your master's possessions, they're all coming back to Mephibosheth, he then looks at Ziba and says, all right, you, your sons, and your servants, which you see in the text, are quite a few. Ziba has 15 sons. He's got 20 servants. And David is saying, you also are going with Mephibosheth. And you're going to take care of the land for him. He can't take care of it. You're going to do that for him. And he says that you will bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. Now again, you might look at that and go, well, time out here. I thought David had promised Mephibosheth that he could eat at his table always. So now why is David making sure that Mephibosheth has bread to eat? What's, what, what, what's happening here? Well, first, yes, he's going to eat at David's table. The text does not let us understand it any differently. Verse 7, David tells him that he would eat at my table always. He then says to Ziba in verse 10, Your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. Verse 11, we, the 7 and 10, that's what was going to happen. And then we see what did happen. Verse 11, Mephibosheth ate at David's table. And in verse 13, he always ate at the king's table. So if there's any doubt, that word always, I think, pretty much sums it up. When did Mephibosheth eat at David's table? Always. So the text is really clear. David is a man of his word. So then, what's the deal? Why the, why the bit about Ziba and company making sure that Mephibosheth has bread? Look again at verse 12. Remember, Mephibosheth has a family. But the text is also clear. Mephibosheth can't take care of his family. He can't provide for them. We see that he is crippled. That's reinforced in verse 13. That's why it's mentioned at the end. Again, the text is driving home for you. This guy cannot meet his need. What he needs, he simply can't do it. And so, why is Ziba providing bread for Mephibosheth's house? Because in doing so, David has not only provided for Mephibosheth by giving him access to his table, he's provided access, or he's provided for Mephibosheth's family by providing him with this large workforce who is going to till the ground and produce bread. And so in all of this, David has effectively adopted Mephibosheth into his own family. Look at verse 11. It says, So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. So there's lots of ways that this probably could have gone. I'm going to show him kindness, and by kindness I mean I'm not going to kill him. He can hang out over there on the other side of the Jordan River, and as long as he stays over there, I won't kill him. It's one way. I'm going to bring him back. I'm going to give him Saul's land. I'll even give him these servants, you know, maybe a few, and they'll provide bread for him so that he can live on the family estate and have food. Could have gone that way. It's not what he does. He doesn't keep him at arm's length. 
David brings him in close, treats him like family, like he's one of his own sons. So Mephibosheth's response here is appropriate, considering the magnitude of kindness that has just been shown to him. Look back at verse 8. He says, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And we live in a world that, and maybe we even feel that ourselves, get a little squeamish at Mephibosheth calling himself a dead dog. I mean, we live in a culture that is all about self-affirmation. You're good enough, you're smart enough, pretty enough, and golly gee, people like you. Have some self-respect. You're not a dead dog. Think good about yourself. You deserve every good thing because you're good enough. But Mephibosheth is looking at the situation with clarity. And his response is in kind. He responds with humility. See, he calls himself a dead dog because he's looking at the situation rightly and goes, I don't deserve this kindness. David does not owe him anything. And so it was only right that he respond with humility and awe. Who am I that you would do this for me? But that's what God does through his king. He displays steadfast, faithful, covenant love to those who are undeserving. His king mediates this kindness to those who are humble, who recognize that his kindness is unmerited, that his kindness is very great, that his kindness is awe-inspiring. But of course, David's kindness to Mephibosheth was only a shadow of how great God's kindness truly is. It's in his true king, Jesus, who is the offspring of David, who is the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to David. Remember, David has received very great promises from God. And for many hundreds of years, there was wondering, when, God, when will you come through on what you have promised to David? When will we have his son? When will we have his offspring? When will he be seated on his throne? When will you do what you have said that you are going to do? And this has happened through his son, the Lord Jesus, who establishes the throne of David, who establishes the kingdom of God forever. And it's through Christ the true king, that the riches of God's kindness have been made fully known. It's through God keeping covenant loyalty to David that his kindness is poured out on us through his true king. And what we see in Christ is that the loving kindness of God is very great. 
that it is unmerited, and that the only right response to it is wonder and awe. See, God in Christ has shown great kindness to those who belonged to the previous king. You belonged to the former regime, to Adam. He was your representative before God. This Adam, who God had made king over his creation in his giving him dominion over it all, who failed to trust God, who failed to obey God, and in so doing plunged his whole house into sin and into ruin. Under his representation, you were born into sin. Your nature, like Adam's, was to reject God. Like Adam did, was to reject God. And so you have. And so how does the New Testament describe us in light of our belonging to Adam's regime? Alienated and hostile towards God. His enemies. Children of his wrath. It is very clear. Because of our association with Adam, we did not deserve not one drop of kindness from God. But what has God done? He has sent his true king into the world. God the Son became man to do what the man Adam failed to do. Jesus trusted the Father. He faithfully served the Father in the world, even to the point of death on the cross, where he bore the full wrath of God for his people. And in this way, he has made peace with God for every single person who looks to him for their righteousness and for salvation. What you had no access to, God has supplied richly through Christ. And in this, we see the fulfillment of God's promises through covenant loyalty. Through his loyalty to David and his establishment of a new covenant. Remember, it is Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took up the cup and said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It's just within the context of covenant that God mediates his kindness to us through Jesus. We receive it by being joined to Christ in whom we are blessed immeasurably. We, under the representation of the new king, who had all the blessings of God poured out on him for his covenant faithfulness, overflows to you and to me. We receive it through our being joined to Christ through faith. And so what we see is that the Lord's kindness is very great. Consider the magnitude of God's kindness to us. Adam walked in the garden with God. But our access to God was lost in his fall. But what God has given us in Christ is that he has forgiven all your sins. He has saved you. Before the foundation of the earth, he chose in Christ to show you kindness for your good and for his 
glory. He set His love on you simply because He chose to love you. And He chose to love you because He did. He dealt with every single one of your sins thousands of years before you could draw a breath and commit them. Through faith in Christ, and by the power of His Spirit, He has covered you in the righteousness of Jesus. His Spirit has come into our hearts, applying that righteousness, the righteousness of Christ to us. It's the Spirit who works out the righteousness of Christ in us, who conforms us into His likeness. He is saving us. It's by His Spirit that He sustains us, keeping us for a salvation that is yet to be revealed. He delivers us from temptation. He works in us to change our desires. He gives us grace to put away sins. He has saved you. He is saving you. And He will save you. Those who are joined to Christ will be delivered from His wrath to come. Because He has given to you eternal life. We know Him now, and we will see Him face to face at the end of the age. Should you die before the Lord's return, He will raise you. We've been delivered from the fear of death. We have the promise the steadfast promise of a new body, an imperishable one, that we will dwell with Him on the new earth, that we will see Him face to face, that we will walk with Him, that He will wipe every tear from our eyes. The access that we lost in Adam's fall, He is restoring through His true King, through Christ. And who receives this? Those that He brings into His family. We have been adopted as sons and cry out to Him, Abba, Father, an intimate cry to our Father in heaven by the Spirit that He has sent into our hearts. In Christ, we have a seat at His table. We will feast at the wedding supper of the Lamb and drink with Him anew. But you must understand, if you are not following Christ, you do not stand to receive any of this kindness. The only kindness that you have from Him is the food that He's providing for you now, the air He's given you to breathe, the water He gives you to drink, the clothes that are on your back, a roof that is over your head, should He provide even that for you. That's a great kindness from Him. One that even that we don't deserve. And yet apart from Christ, you are still under His wrath. But it doesn't have to be that way. See, this great kindness is there for you, for you too. Confess your sins. Trust Christ. Turn away from your sins. Receive the fullness of God's kindness to you in Christ. God has sought us out in Christ to bless us. And He has blessed us beyond comprehension. And He has done this for His glory. So then, what 
is this extraordinary kindness going to produce in his own? Well, you can probably think of a few things. There's, there's lots of directions we could go here. Those who have received the kindness of God, well, God's kindness is going to be poured out from them into the people around them, is it not? Forgiveness, gentleness, patience, grace. Is that not what God has shown us in Christ? Then will it not be poured out from us into those around us? Sure. But those, those who receive the Lord's kindness are going to marvel at it. So the avalanche of kindness that God has poured out on us will produce a joyful awe and a response that is consistent with that joy. And so marveling at the Lord's kindness is going to root out pride. The awe that we should have at the gospel should remove all delusions that we deserve God's kindness. That our works, our, our best works, the reality of the gospel that it teaches us is that apart from Christ, our best works do nothing but merit the wrath of God. Peace with God comes only through Christ's righteousness, not through anything that we do. I mean, consider that the fact that we can even start to wrap our minds around the Lord's kindness, that is in, of its, in and of itself the Lord's kindness to us. Right now, if you are looking at this text, and if it is producing in you awe of the Lord's kindness, well, think about it. That's his book. He had this written down for us, preserved, translated, provided. He gathers us together that we may hear the word explained. It's, it's application to our lives. That is from the Spirit. This is all his kindness to you. And so comparing ourselves against others, patting ourselves on the back for our good deeds, or on the other side, assuming that we have outsinned the grace of God, that we've gone too far and that he simply cannot forgive me now, none of that is marveling at the Lord's kindness. That's either being in awe of yourself, or it's a desire to be in awe of yourself, disappointed that you can't be. Instead, be in awe the kindness of God to you in Christ. Well, marveling at the Lord's kindness is also going to root out boredom with the gospel. What is your response to this great gospel? What will you talk about in the car ride home? Or what will you talk about over the lunch table? When you pick up the Bible and read it, do you take time to consider what God has done for you in Christ? You know, we, we can come here, we can hear the gospel week after week, multiple times week after week, and walk out with our minds just immediately on to the next thing. We take up God's word, we read over it, and then immediately we take up our phones to get caught up in what is going on in the world around us. 
See, our affections for God are so easily watered down. And that's a shame. I mean, think about it. You've heard the good news of what God has done to deliver us from His wrath. You've taken up His Word and you've, and you've read it and been reminded of what God has done in Christ. Stop and consider how kind God has been to you and give God thanks for that kindness. When you find yourself growing bored with the gospel, which is a temptation for any of us, that we, any of us may face, recognize that for what it is. It is a cooling of your affections towards God. And so what ought you to do? Well, cry out to God for help. And do so knowing that your God is extraordinarily faithful and kind. And his king will give you help in your time of need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a loving kindness that is beyond compare. That cannot perhaps even be done justice now. But your loving kindness is so remarkable. Forgive us for how easily we grow tired of it, for how quickly we reach the place of wanting something more. Help us by causing our hearts to burst with joy at what you have done. Cause us to see how desperate we are for you, how great our need is for you that we may give you the praise that you are due. Turn our hearts to thanksgiving for your wonderful kindness to us. Pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.